0: Hi, I'm Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal speaking to you from Orbit Studios in Seattle's Pioneer Square. And I am so excited to welcome you to my first ever Stir the Pod podcast, a title, by the way, that those of you who follow me on Twitter helped me choose. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about what's happening in the world and we'll bring voices to the table that aren't always heard. As well as having conversations about ideas and with people who are leaders and inspirations in our country and building the kind of country we want. People that are, well, stirring the pot. And since this is our very first episode, I'll start by telling those of you who are just getting to know me um, just a little bit about myself. I'm proud to represent Washington's 7th District, that's Greater Seattle and the surrounding areas, in the United States House of Representatives and I'm proud to be an immigrant. I was born in India and my parents used all of their $5,000 in savings to send me here by myself when I was 16. I was, believe it or not, an English major in college. I did get a master's in business because that was what my dad wanted me to do and I did work in the private sector for a few years before leaving because I realized I really wanted to spend my life working for social justice to make the communities better, to make the communities that I live in better. And so I worked for um, nonprofits for the last 30 years of my life. I worked in global health around the world on women's reproductive rights. And then after 9-11, I ended up founding and running for more than a decade, Washington State's largest immigrant rights organization. And we started after 9-11 to fight back against, initially it was hate crimes against Arabs and Muslims, But very quickly, it turned into civil rights abuses, and we worked on righting those abuses. We actually sued the Bush administration around the deportation of 5,000 Somalis across the country, and we won. And we started organizing all of our immigrant communities for comprehensive immigration reform, for the DREAM Act, for DACA, which is so relevant now, and to stand up for immigrant rights. We also helped organize, way back in 2003, the Immigrant Workers Freedom Ride from our state, joining people from all over the country to send buses to Washington, D.C., and fight for a real comprehensive solution to our broken immigration system. And we brought voices that had never been at the table to be part of the solutions we craft. We won all kinds of victories here in our state, like keeping driver's licenses available for everyone regardless of citizenship, to organizing to make Seattle one of the very first sanctuary cities in the country. I've always believed, too, that we human beings are not single-issue people. I and all immigrants want good jobs and healthcare and education, and so we built real coalitions with labor and faith and business, and we worked on a whole host of issues. and. I'm particularly proud to have worked on the committee that passed the $15 minimum wage here in Seattle, which has been an inspiration to a whole host of activity across the country that's been led by the Fight for 15. So why, after all of that, did I decide to run for office? Well, after 15 years of civil rights and human rights work, I decided that instead of trying to get other people to do the things that we felt that we needed done, that more women, more folks of color, more activists from the ground should actually run for office and try to do these things ourselves. And so in 2014, I ran for and was elected to the Washington State Senate. I became the only woman of color in the Washington State Senate. And then in 2016, I ran for Congress, and I'm so proud today to be the first Indian American woman ever elected to the House of Representatives, and one of only a handful of immigrants who were born outside of the United States who currently serve in Congress, which just feels so very important in this day and age. I'm a very proud, strong progressive, and I was elected the first vice chair of the Progressive Caucus in Congress, and along with the co-chairs of that caucus, Mark Pocan from Wisconsin and Raul Grijalva from Arizona, we're working hard to build our progressive movement in Congress and across the country. Here's what I think we have to do. We have to demand more from our elected officials. And we have to demand that we use these platforms for organizing, to help connect people with their government again, to help people understand that in order to keep democracy alive, we actually have to work at it and to help people understand who serve in office, that our first responsibility is to our constituents, to working people across the country who believe that it is just the thing that we need to stand by, that if you have a job, it should pay you enough to make ends meet, that you should never be one healthcare crisis away from bankruptcy, that you should be able to put food on the table and take care of your kids. And so that's what I believe Americans across the country want from us as elected officials. And part of our job is to inspire people to believe that government and democracy matters. And so during my campaign for Congress, we had over 1,200 volunteers who knocked on 120,000 doors and made over 250,000 phone calls to engage young people and folks of color and women and people who felt like they had been forgotten from our democracy. That's the way that we need to go in this country. We need to do more organizing. We need to remember that there are a lot of people who had just checked out. And our job as activists, as organizers, and as elected officials is to get those folks back in. And that's what you're seeing across the country in states like Virginia and Alabama. You're seeing people Driving elections, getting results that nobody thought were possible before. And you're seeing that diversity of candidates across the country running and winning. So it's not that we're taught, it's never been a fight about the white working class, which often means white working class men, and identity politics in quotes. It's always been about working people of every color, of every race, ethnicity, rural and urban, people who feel like they have been forgotten because they have, because our system has been rigged to reflect the wishes and priorities of corporations and the wealthiest, and not to make sure that there's core dignity and respect for people across this country who work so hard day in and day out. So you're gonna hear more over time in this podcast about how we change politics as we know it, But for right now, let me just say that it's an honor to serve, particularly at this consequential moment in time where we are literally fighting for the soul of our country every single day against a president who revels in using racism and hatred to fire up this shrinking minority of his base. But as an organizer, here's what I know. I know that strength comes in times of crisis. And as we note the one-year anniversary of Trump's inauguration, we also note the remarkable power um, of the resistance, the inspiring power of the resistance, the millions of women of all colors, all people of all genders marching in the streets. And in just a little bit, we'll have with us Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, and Linda Sarsour who was one of the uh, co-chairs and founders of the Women's March. These two women are leaders across our country and doing so much for the resistance. Now, before we get to them, let me just cover a few quick things that are topical. Um, One of them is the shutdown that happened. You know, I didn't get back to Seattle um, until just a couple of days ago because we were in D.C. because even though Republicans control the House, the Senate, and the White House, they were unable to get enough votes to actually keep the, the government going and to actually be able to put together a permanent budget. And Democrats said, listen, if you need our votes, then you need to reflect our priorities. And our priorities were the funding of the Children's Health Insurance Program, the community health centers funding for Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and the devastation um, that is going on down there, and also making sure that we have a permanent solution to the 1.5 million DREAMers across our country who are fearing deportation. Why? Because the President, Donald Trump, put them in that situation when he rescinded DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, um, that oh, President Obama passed and made uh, gave these young people an opportunity to have status here in this country and to come out of the shadows and contribute their skills. Well, the Republicans didn't want to talk to the Democrats, and so we said, we're not giving you any votes. I ended up ultimately voting no on the, um, on the continuing resolution that the Senate passed and that the House ultimately passed because... I have to say I'm cynical about whether or not the Republicans are ever going to put forward uh, a real solution for the Dreamers. But I'm going to hold out hope that by February 8th that is going to happen. It's not going to happen without tremendous organizing from the outside. And so I want to thank the Dreamers and um, young people across this country that are telling their stories and forcing Americans to choose which side of history they're gonna be on, on the side of justice or on the side of deportation. Um, and we are gonna to continue to mount the kind of resistance that ultimately killed Trump care multiple times. They tried to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, but it was the resistance across the country, it was women in the streets, it was folks of color, it was seniors who went in in their wheelchairs, people with disabilities who said, You are gonna have to carry us out because we are not gonna let you take away our health care, And yet, they are still continuing to undermine the Affordable Care Act. So ultimately, the answer is to turn out at the polls, to make sure that we vote, and to make sure that we take our power to the ballot box and win back seats across the country with real progressives who are gonna fight for working people no matter where you live. And so, We're excited to continue that movement, to stir the pod, to get people excited and fired up and ready to take action and ready to put ourselves um, out on the line to protect our democracy. And now we get to move to what I think is going to be one of the best parts of this program, which is when I get to interview the people who inspire me, leaders across the country. And so we'll get right to it with Alicia Garza and Linda Sarsour. So I am incredibly honored at this very first podcast of Stir the Pod to be joined over the phone by two of my all-time favorite women in the country, leaders of our movement, Alicia Garza and Linda Sarsour. Alicia is one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. She's an Oakland-based organizer, writer, and public speaker, and the recipient of the 2016 Glamour Women of the Year Award and the 2016 Marie Claire New Guard Award. And Linda Sarsour, a longtime friend of mine, an activist, former executive director of the Arab American Association of New York and one of the most brilliant women in our country, co-chaired the historic 2017 Women's March and is constantly on the move fighting for our democracy. Thank you both so much for joining me.
1: Happy to be here. Very excited. Thank you.
0: I heard you say, Linda, that you're in Jamaica.
1: I definitely am in Jamaica, man. I have to get recharged from this craziness that is called the United States of America. How <laughs> to get out of there for a little bit.
0: Well, let's start with the Women's March because you both um, were deeply involved in shaping what that march looked like. And I know it wasn't easy to make it the success that it ultimately was. So tell us a little bit on this one year anniversary, Linda. Um, how that came into being, how you got involved, and what you think a year later.
1: I mean, the Women's March, as you know, is the largest single-day protest in U.S. history. In fact, this past weekend, which was the one-year anniversary, was much larger. Last year, we had about 2.3 million people out on the streets of the United States. This year, um, it's looking like it was closer to 4.2 million people. So the fact that the one-year anniversary was larger than the first march is really remarkable to me. Um, Got involved as a Muslim-American woman who was on Facebook after the elections of 2016, and I saw these posts about this women, you know, gathering, and I was kind of hating, I'm not going to lie. I was like, Million Women's March? I was like, this is not going to work. And then I went in the event, and I read the description, and it said, you know, we're going to come together to stand for Black women and Native women and immigrant women. But they actually hadn't mentioned Muslim women and it really bothered me because I was watching this election that was targeting Muslims and Islam in such a vicious way and for people to forget us was really, I think really just gave me this like really uneasy feeling. So I commented and I said, this looks like a great endeavor. I hope that we can include Muslim women and Muslim communities. And at the same time, simultaneously, Tamika Mallory and Carmen Perez, one is Latina, Chicana, and one is African-American, had already been connected to the white woman organizers. And they said, look, we, we we come in three. There's a woman that we don't do anything without Linda. So if Linda can't be part of this, then we just can't do this. And they said, Linda, they said, is it Linda Sarsour? They were like, yeah. How do you know her? They said, well, there's a woman that just commented on our Facebook page. And she ain't happy. And I um, and that's kind of how I got brought into the Women's March. And I'll be honest with you, like at the time, I didn't really have much time to give. I have kids. I got a, two full time jobs. And I knew that if I didn't come to the table, my people weren't going to be at the table and they were not going to be centered. So um, and then we Carmen and I then decided that we needed to bring people to the table to work on an intersectional platform for the march. Because we were tired of some of the white women saying, well, we're anti-Trump. This is against Trump. And we were like, nah. That is not what this is about, because we've been fighting the same things you guys are mad about way before there was ever a Donald Trump. So bringing in people like Alicia and iGen, and we want to build a platform that we stand for, something that we're going to walk out into the streets and say, here's what our principles and values are. We're not just out here, you know, standing against something. And that's how we came up with the unity principles for the Women's March, which, in my opinion, are the boldest, most intersectional, you know, platform led by women that I've ever seen, you know, you know, I think the movement for black lives principles were just as bold, but to see something come together at the hands of women of all backgrounds is really powerful to me. And, and that's where we are. And here we are a year later, standing on those unity principles and trying and struggling and, And, you know, and and debating and we're still, you know, evolving, but I'm very proud of the work that we've all done together and really grateful to be in this movement with you, Pramila, on the inside, fighting for us and people like me and Alicia trying to fight for us on the outside.
0: Well, and it's amazing because I remember being on a panel with you at Facing Race where you were saying, you know, this could be something incredible, but we have to make it. Reflective of all of us, and that actually is exactly what you went and did. And I don't think it was easy. And Alicia, you've talked a lot about the women's movement um, and racial justice, and the ways in which race was, uh, in some, you know, in some ways, actively um, discouraged in terms of racial equity was actively discouraged by some of the early white feminists. And your work around Black Lives Matter has been transformative in a country that has traditionally refused to talk about race. And so tell us a little bit about your perspective, um, both in terms of how you how you kind of, I know you don't like to have it said that you helped start Black Lives Matter, because um, I know you feel that it was much bigger than the three of you, but you certainly put it on the map in a different way. Um, and... I know that the principles there were very much part of uh, the women's march and making sure that that was reflected. So, tell us why and how Black Lives Matter kind of became the movement that it is today.
2: Well, I think the the thing to remember is that <clears throat> it was an idea whose time had come, and when we saw how much relevance and resonance that. Black Lives Matter began to have with people in a moment where I think people felt lost and felt like it's 2013. Why are we still having these conversations about police murdering children? Why are we still having these conversations about vigilantes um, murdering children because they're scared of Black people, right? So it was an idea whose time had come and I think it created an opportunity for people to build community and to dive in and say, I don't have to wait for somebody else to figure out what we do about police violence, about state sanctioned murders of Black people. I can be a part of the change that I want to see in my community, in my workplace, in my school, etc. And so that's part of where I think uh, Black Lives Matter kind of blew uh, to, to, uh, amazing proportions. I think the other piece that is really important here is that, um, Black Lives Matter comes onto the scene in 2013, um, but it didn't mean that the killing stopped. And really when the movement, I think, got bigger was when, uh, the folks in Ferguson uh, decided that they were not going to go back home after Mike Brown was killed and then left in the street for four and a half hours. So, so the, 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 the bringing together of those things, I think, really helped to create uh, this moment and have and has really sustained uh, people's activism and energy in a broad-based movement. I will also say that part of the appeal of Black Lives Matter. I think, is um, really about, you know, expanding how we understand Black communities and who is a part of Black communities. We have fundamentally asked the question about who gets dignity, who deserves dignity, and why are we making these uh, classifications of who gets to access dignity and who doesn't when all Black people are being impacted by the same issues? Um, so, for example, we saw a lot of energy around Black men and Black boys who had been killed by police or vigilantes, but we're also pushing the question around what about Black women and what about Black girls? Um, and who's protecting them, right? Who's empowering Black women and Black girls? Uh, when we also pushed this, this frame around Black queer people and Black trans people, um, experiencing these multiple forms of, of oppression and domination, I think it, again, helps to expand the the perception of, well, who, who are all a part of Black communities and why are Black people in our various forms um, being impacted disproportionately by police violence, by state-sanctioned violence, by a lack of access to the things that that guarantee us dignity. And so that's where I think Black Lives Matter has has really resonated and has continued to generate resonance, not only across the country, but throughout the world. Black Lives Matter is now an international
0: movement. So Alicia, that was an amazing articulation, I think, of the movement and also how far we have to go. Do you think that Black Lives Matter um, uh, feels like the consciousness of the country has changed in a significant enough way that we can stop the killings of black men in our foreseeable future? Do you feel like that dignity and respect that you were talking about is um, finally entering the consciousness of white folks in the country who haven't really thought about it in those terms?
2: Well, what I think, what I know is that Um, all different kinds of Black people are being murdered and are being impacted by various forms of violence that have been sanctioned by the state. And so um, consciousness raising is a big part of what it takes to stop that, but it's not the only piece. And I also would say that um, what feels right to me is that it's not just about White people having this seep into their consciousness, right? Um, but it is very much about making sure that Black communities, in particular, get organized, get unified, and and then get mobilized to change the balance of power, so that we are not on the losing end of these interactions, right? So we need to be uh, uh, organized and unified, so that we can build the kind of political power that's necessary to change who's making decisions over our lives. And so this year is incredibly important for that. Um, We have an opportunity to change the balance of power in the house. We have the opportunity to change the balance of power in our cities and in our states. And so I think that this is gonna be a year given the energy that has been generated and the consciousness that's been raised by Black Lives Matter and the Women's March and Standing Rock, right? And and so many other kind of emerging movements. I think this is gonna be the year where we're going to start to see that change at the ballot box and at the polls.
0: I totally agree with you. And I have to put in a plug for our initiative, Deescalate Washington and our state that would finally uh, have some accountability um, and change some of the laws that essentially allow uh, law enforcement to kill people without accountability, but would also provide tools for law enforcement to de-escalate and to be able to manage the situations differently. And we're really excited that that has made it to the ballot, and we have a great coalition supporting that work. Okay, Linda, back to you. I know you've been thinking a lot about how we translate the energy in the streets to to power at the polls, which is what Alicia was just talking about. So, and I know you've done a lot of work to really try to document where this energy is, and and tell us about how these marches translate into winning back um, seats with progressive candidates, people who are actually going to fight for the vision and the principles that you have outlined uh, through the Women's March.
1: So, this year is the year um, where a lot of a lot of um, folks that think that we're on the same side are going to be real mad at me. And it's because I'm encouraging um, primary Democrats in the primaries. And the reason why is because I think this really is our year, Pramila, to stop with the status quo, stop selling the lesser of two evils, stop selling me that, Democrats are the answer to everything and really putting up real progressive, progressive women. I really believe in my heart that those who are most directly impacted by the issues are the best leaders that we need right now. So what we're going to be doing this year is we're going to be focusing both on primaries and the general election. And we're going to go to cities and states that we have identified as being very important states. And they have a couple of criteria. Some are that they're battleground states, others that they have voter suppression laws that kept a lot of people of color and poor people away from the polls. And going in and really energizing a base that has long, for too long been ignored. And these people are tired of being ignored. So when we go to their communities, they actually are fired up. Like, for example, we went to Vegas. People in Vegas told us we never saw a stadium with that many people. We just don't do that here in Vegas. That's just not how we organize. And locals told us that. So we want to go, you know, we're going to go to states like Michigan, and which went for Bernie during the primaries in 2016. But then they voted Trump in 2000. And, you know, and during the general election in 2016, somebody has to analyze that. How do you vote for Bernie, but then you vote for Trump in the 2016 general election?
0: Don't you think it's because so many of the policies that people call progressive are really working family policies? And people want people who are going to speak with integrity and authenticity and take on the corporations and the power.
1: 100 percent. This is a cultural message, and it's one that speaks to working families. People want to know how to pay their rent. They want to know how they're going to feed their families. They want to know that their kids are going to have access to higher education. They want to know that when they get sick, that they can go to a hospital and get care. Like, I don't care what side of the political aisle you are on. People are, we we all have things that we share. So I think that for us, it's really about this idea that we all deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And a lot of these marginalized communities have voter blocks that have never been leveraged, one of them being the Muslim community. And you know this, Pramila, the reason why Bernie got the biggest political upset in U.S. history in Michigan was the Muslim vote. Three to one, they voted for Bernie in the primaries um, when it was between him and Hillary Clinton. And that should tell people something. Why? Because Bernie went to the mosque. Bernie went to that community and said, you're important. Bernie talked about issues of Palestine. And he really came to a community and said, no, not on my campaign. You actually matter. Like, I want to know what you think. So what we're doing is we're going to communities and saying, what do you think? Who do we need to organize? What resources do you need? Bringing our platform, bringing the media that, that is attracted to us to the local communities. Like in Nevada, we were able to put local people on local news stations, you know, get them into the local papers to talk about the work that they've been doing for a long time. Nevada was doing good work before we ever got there. They turned blue in 2016. They got they won some seats. They have actually gender parity. 50% of their state legislators women. Who knows that? unless you bring that and and amplify the stories of those folks on the ground. So we're fired up. We're going to Michigan. We're going to Pennsylvania. We're going to Wisconsin. We're going to Florida. We're going to Texas. I mean, we have a list of, of places where people are really fired up to have us down there. I mean, we just went to Atlanta. Uh, for the Atlanta Women's March. Me and Tamika went out there and Stacey Abrams was there. People are fired up. They're so excited that they have the opportunity to put the first Black woman governor in America, really. Like, it was the most heartwarming thing i ever seen. So we're going to go out there do voter engagement, voter registration trainings, voter registration, do some kind of, you know, large-scale events, getting people fired up, bring a couple of folks, you know, trying to find high-profile folks from each of those areas to come and be with their people and say, I'm with you. It's going to be exciting, and I'm really excited to be a part of it um and really challenge our own people probably we got to challenge our own people we can't just be it's not a, it's not us against the republicans it's it's who's with working families who's with poor people who's with immigrants who's with the muslims who's with the black people who's with the most vulnerable of our society and that's that's how you judge a society absolutely you judge a society by their most vulnerable and when everybody has something, when everybody got an access to prosperity, then you can tell me that you are the greatest nation on earth. But up until now, you are not.
0: No, I was just going to say, you know what I remember, Linda, is after 9-11, it was really hard to get any elected official to come and stand in a mosque with me when I was starting Hate Free Zone. And so it's not, you know, now Trump has has made uh, Islamophobia a little more popular, but there it took a long time to get people into the place where they recognized that we need to embrace uh, Muslims, that we need to stand up for Muslims, that we should be proud to go into mosques and recognize Muslims as our community members. And, and you know, and I think that the Progressive Caucus, where I'm the first vice chair, we're also trying to make sure that we're moving the party to the left, that we are continuing to stand up for dignity and respect, for Medicare for All, for domestic workers' rights, for women's rights, for trans rights, for all of these things that I actually think the majority of Americans are looking for. So let me give, Alicia, I want to give you the last word. Um, I saw the night of the Golden Globes and I saw... Uh, Oprah's incredible speech. And I saw that you were tweeting about how it was a big night for Hollywood, not just for Hollywood, but also for domestic workers and low-wage workers um, and stories that were being lifted up that night. Yeah. Lead, you know, end this session for us by telling us um, about that piece, the organizing that's happening with domestic workers and low-wage workers and what the Me Too movement really is about in terms of regular women workers across the country that face harassment and assault but are organizing for more power. Absolutely. Let me just start off
2: by saying I am so proud of our movement. That night, 100 million people learned about domestic workers and farm workers and restaurant workers. 100 million people across the country tuned in and saw actresses who were being, uh, who were up for awards at the Golden Globes, standing next to organizers who had been building the power of women for years. And one thing that I think it's important for people to understand is that there was a lot of organizing that went into that. There was a lot of organizing <laughs> that went into that. There was strategy sessions that happened beforehand. There were commitments that were um, made by the actresses to make sure that any press that they talked to would also talk to the organizer that they were with. Um, There was a lot of work that was done around making sure that our communities were being represented in the ways that we deserve to be represented. And so what people saw was the end result, um, but what people didn't see was all the work that went into making that action seamless and making sure that we weren't just accessories, that people weren't just flippantly mentioning, oh, this also happens to low-wage workers who are women. We came together across industry and across community to say, not only will we not be silenced, but we won't be divided. And in 2018, that's the kind of movement that I think we're gonna need to be successful in changing the balance of power and improving conditions and improving the lives of women and improving the lives of everyone. I also wanna say that, you know, Tarana Burke really deserves so many kudos um, for building this movement 10 years ago in the service of young women who had been assaulted, who had experienced violence and harassment and didn't think that anybody wanted to hear their story. And as anybody knows, right, to hold in something that is traumatic, right, is is not only a cause of a loss of dignity, but it impacts our health, right? It impacts our emotional health, our mental health, and certainly our physical health. And so Tarana's vision um, was also an, an idea that whose time had come, and I'm so proud To be standing next to her and to be working with her to say, hey, you know, Me Too is not about, it's not about punishing men, right? It's about changing the culture in this country that allows for women to live in precarious situations. It's about changing the the dynamic in this country that allows for women to have to choose between feeding your family and being safe in your workplace. And so, what Me Too and Time's Up is saying is that those days are over, and and the movement that we are building to change this country um, is so profound. And I'm I'm moved every time I think about it. So the Golden Globes was an amazing moment, um, but the thing that really sits with me and and stirs me the most is that it really is an indication of what's to come and the move the kind of movement that we're building in order to change what's happening in the United States.
0: And you two are stirring the pot in the most beautiful of ways. And I want to thank you for your incredible work, your tireless work, your inspiring work and leadership for all of us in building that movement. Thank you, Alicia Garza and Linda Sarsour. <laughs> thank you both. We <laughs> thank appreciate you, both. you, Congresswoman. We love you, Pramila. With that, Thank you for joining us on our inaugural Stir the Pod. What'd you think? Do we stir things up? I hope you'll join us again. And before we end, I want to give a special remembrance to someone who was very special to me and to millions of people around the country and around the world. And that is Ursula K. Le Guin, the incredible writer, novelist, essayist, poet. And amazingly enough, I was so fortunate to have her as a writing mentor for me and as a friend. And so today she's got the most incredible writings, but we'll just end with one of her favorite quotes, which is, it's good to have an end to journey toward, but it is the journey that matters in the end. Thanks for joining us today. Who should I talk to next? What issues do you want me to tackle? Just let us know on Twitter or Facebook and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Connect with us online at twitter.com forward slash Pramila Jayapal or SoundCloud.com forward slash and at PramilaForCongress.com.